BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Scared to Death is explicit in every way. Please take care while listening. Whether thou art a ghost that hath come from the earth, or a phantom of night that hath no heart, or one that lieth dead in the desert, or a ghost unburied, or a demon, or a ghoul, whatever thou be until thou art removed, thou shalt find here no water to drink. Thou shalt not stretch forth thy hand to our own. Into our house enter thou not. Through our fence break through thou not. We are protected, though we may be frightened. Our life you may not steal, though we may be scared to death. Welcome to Scared to Death, Creeps, Peepers, Roberts, and Annabelles. I'm Dan. Hello, Dan. I'm Lindsay. Hello. Hello, sir. Uh, I don't always mention it here, but we are continually adding things to the badmagicmerch.com store. Like the recent Man Eater 3000. So silly. The perfect addition for any woman's kitchen. You can crush up to 35 whole chickens or roughly one whole human male in one sitting. And to celebrate this top of the line blender grinder, releasing a special edition Man Eater 3000 tea featuring a fun demonstration of grinding and crushing. I love it. Yeah. So I uh, don't always mention it uh, here that we have new things going in the store, but weekly things are being added. Yes. Yes. Logan is continually whipping up some cool designs for you guys. And then I just have one quick announcement. Just as cool. a reminder, uh, by the time you hear this episode, the Giving Tree signups for those in need of help this holiday season will already be closed. But we as a community could still use your help because we need to build up the fund that supports these 30 families that we're able to help. So if you have the ability to send a five, 10, whatever dollar Amazon gift card. We would love to have that. Dan and I will match it dollar for dollar up to $13,000. We're hoping to gather as much as we can so we can support these families in a really cool way. And if you're able to do it, so just go to amazon.com and when you're buying the gift card, it will ask who to send it to and you will enter givingtree2023 at badmagicproductions.com. If you missed any of that, you can visit badmagicmerch.com. Look for the Giving Tree banner and all the information is there. Sweet. And now story time. Just, 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 just story. How many stories do you have, Lulu? You're not going to believe it. You have two. I do. Okay. I have two stories, and my stories are quite atypical for me this week. They are, I don't want to say sad, but they're they're heavier okay. in, in nature. Um, but both of them center around, you know, losing a loved one and then possibly sticking around and or watching uh, your loved one pass on. Oh, all right. I, very different. Yeah, yeah. I, I have three. Uh, for my first, we head to just outside of London, traveling back to 1758 to explore the story of the ghost of Anne Naylor, 
a spirit said to have haunted the London Underground's Farringdon Station since it opened in 1863 and to have haunted that area around the station for over 100 years before the station opened. Uh, Then we'll travel to 1994, head nearby to a little logging town in the western half of Washington State, Oakville, to explore a strange mystery involving a mysterious substance falling from the sky that some think may have extraterrestrial origins. Okay. Finally, we're going to jump into a haunted house tale coming from eastern Pennsylvania in 2009. Another example of how maybe not a great idea to play with the Ouija board and dabble in occult rituals in an already haunted house. That seems like valid advice. (laughs) You socked up and ready to go, old lady? Uh, Hey, 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 hey. I know, old lady, I'm sitting here with my heating pad on my stomach. Uh, (laughs) Look, Now, I got these little cat slip-on grippy jail socks when we were at summer camp, and the person who gave them to me, she gave me a note, and I slipped it into the socks, and then I lost the note. So I apologize, but they are so stinking cute. (laughs) They are cute. They're cute. Don't mind me in my pajamas, eyeglasses, and... Heating pad, two guesses as to what's going on with me right now. (laughs) Uh, For the first story, I got a little bit of historical setup before I tell, uh, you were talking about sad stories. This first one of mine is honestly kind of a sad story as well. Oh, jeez, guys. Buckle up. So the London Underground opened as the world's first underground passenger railway, aka a subway, way back in January of 1863. In the over 160 years of its use, there have been numerous deaths associated with the underground ranging from accidents to suicides to murders. Most of the deaths have been accidental, the majority occurring during either the initial construction of various lines or the maintenance and renovations that keep those lines going. Uh, During construction, many places of rest for the dead have been disturbed, such as numerous old graveyards and burial grounds, even some old plague pits. Because of its close association with a fair amount of death and suffering, it comes as no surprise that there are a number of apparitions associated with various portions of the underground, including several supposedly haunted underground stations. The focus of my story is the Farringdon Underground Station, one of the original stations, opened in 1863, in the London borough of Islington, just outside the city. Farringdon was the terminus of the original Metropolitan Railway and is one of the oldest surviving underground railway stations in the world. And the neighborhood it serves has had a colorful history. According to writer David Castleton, Farringdon was once a poor and disreputable area full of criminals and gambling dens. Sounds kind of fun. Over a century before the London Underground first began operations in a house that once stood close to the Farringdon station, a horrific double murder took place. So not fun. And ever since its opening, the spirit of one of these murder victims has supposedly haunted the Farringdon Underground station. Time now for the tale of the ghost of Ann Naylor. Poor little Ann Naylor was just 13 when she was murdered, and what a hard 13 years she had lived. In 1758, she and her sister Mary were sent out to become apprentices at a hat maker shop at Bruton Street in Hanover Square, or on Bruton Street. Ann and Mary were orphans and grew up in what was called a workhouse, an institution that would provide work and shelter for poor and orphans, or poor orphans, where people were often forced to live in inhumane conditions. It was customary for these workhouses and for impoverished families to send out children for apprenticeships beginning around the age of 12. Anne and Mary, along with three other girls, worked for a woman named Sarah Metyard, 60 years old, and her daughter, Sarah Morgan Metyard, 22 years old, nicknamed Sally. Mrs. Metyard, the elder, was said to have a harsh temper and to be a bit sadistic. She doled out harsh punishments, Girls in her care were frequently beaten and even starved. 
Young Anne was already in poor health from her years at the workhouse when she first met Sarah. And then she would go on to receive the brunt of Sarah's abuse due to not being a strong or healthy child who had trouble keeping up with the cruel woman's demanding workload. Anne hated her life with Mrs. Metyard. She hated it so much she decided she would rather face a life of begging and scraping by on the streets than to continue working for her. So she ran away. She escaped from Mrs. Metyard's hat shop, but then a local boy soon found her and he dragged her back. She would be severely punished for having escaped. Sarah Metyard confined Anne in the garret, another word for an attic, where she was locked inside and giving nothing more than just enough water and stale bread to barely survive. Anne soon made another escape attempt the moment she had the chance. According to an old case report found on xclassics.com, pretty cool website devoted to providing readers with digital copies of obscure and long out-of-print historic works, Anne seized an opportunity of escaping from her confinement. Unperceived, she got into the street and ran into a milk carrier whom she begged to protect her, saying that if she returned, she must certainly perish through the want of food and severe treatment she daily received. Being soon missed, she was followed by the younger Metyard who, quote, seized her by the neck, forced her into the house, and threw her upon the bed in the room where she had been confined. And she was then seized by the old woman who held her down while the daughter beat her with the handle of a broom in a most cruel manner. Sarah and Sally decided to make an example out of Anne, to show other apprentices what would happen to them if they also tried to prematurely terminate their period of indentured servitude. After her beating with a broom handle, the two women tied the girl to the attic door with a cord around her waist and her hands bound behind her. She was fastened to the door in such a way that she could neither sit nor lie down. Forced to stand all day in this manner in misery, she was only released to sleep at night, her legs achy and often asleep to the point she was barely able to walk on her own or unable and had to crawl and then she was locked again in the attic. Anne was given no food and no water for a full three days. Oh my God. Where she was bound left her in clear view of the other apprentices who were working in an adjoining apartment. Sarah hoped the sight of her misery would discourage them from being disobedient. That same case report from X Classic states, having received no kind of nutrient for three days and two nights, her strength was so exhausted that being unable to walk upstairs, she crept to the garret where she lay on her hands and feet. Some other girls tasked with locking her away at night now noticed that Anne had stopped moving. She didn't even appear to be breathing. They called out to Sally Metyard for help. Miss Sally, Miss Sally, Nanny does not move. The younger Sally came up the stairs saying, if she does not move, I will make her move. She proceeded to scream at the girl and beat Anne about the head with the heel of her shoe. Jesus. But she remained unresponsive. Sally now called for her mother to come up to the attic. Sarah ordered the cords around Anne's body to be cut and laid her across her lap. She held some heart-shorn heart drops. It's a mixture that smells strongly of ammonia. Uh, below her nose in an attempt to try and startle her back to consciousness. But she was unsuccessful. Sarah now realized that Anne was truly dead. She had killed her. She'd beaten and starved her to death. She now ordered the rest of the girls downstairs, leaving only her and her daughter in the attic. They both knew they had taken things far too far, and now they were both responsible for Anne's murder. Fearing being caught, they decided to come up with a story as to what had happened to her and also to hide her body. They first brought a plate of food to the attic under the guise of offering Anne some dinner. They then told the other girls that Anne had been in a fit, but thankfully had regained consciousness and recovered. 
Now she was to be locked up again so she wouldn't dare and run away. Sarah and Sally stored Anne's body in a large box in the attic for several days, then left the attic and shop doors open. Soon after that, Sarah asked one of the apprentices to call Anne down for dinner. The girl soon ran back to report that she was nowhere to be found and that someone had left the doors open. Sarah and Sally now made a big show of searching the whole house for Anne before concluding that she must have run away yet again. But Mary, Anne's sister, was not buying their act. She told one of Mrs. Metyard's lodgers that she thought Anne was dead and that she'd been murdered by Sarah and Sally. Searching for her sister, she said she'd found some of her clothing in the attic and she knew her sister would have surely taken her precious few belongings with her if she had indeed decided to run away. When the Metyards became aware of Mary's suspicions, they murdered her as well <gasps> to prevent anyone from discovering what they'd done to Anne. Mary's manner of death and the Metyards' disposal methods did not make it into the historical record. Despite silencing Mary, the Metyards were still worried about being caught for their misdeeds. Anne's body was still in a box in the attic. And after two months, the smell of her decomposition was becoming noticeable to the other girls. Sarah and Sally knew they had to move her corpse and quickly. So on Christmas Day, they dismembered her rotting remains, wrapping her head and torso in one cloth and her limbs in another. They removed one of Anne's fingers to test burning her flesh in the fireplace, but the smell was too strong. They would have to dispose of Anne's remains another way. They decided to take Anne's remains to a gully hole a.k.a. an an access point in the sewer drainage system, on Chick Lane, very close to where the current Farringdon Underground Station is located. They planned to throw her body over a wall into the hole into the sewer, but they weren't strong enough, so so they just abandoned her dismembered remains in the mud. A watchman found the pieces of Anne's body at midnight and reported it to a constable. A coroner soon arrived on the scene and assumed the body was stolen from a graveyard and must have been dissected by medical students. And uh, the case went no further after this. It looked as if the women had gotten away with murder. And maybe they would have if Ann Naylor's ghost hadn't have helped bring her killers to justice. Reports of a haunting on Chick Lane started circulating soon after the Met Yards dumped Ann's body. There were tales of a girl's disembodied scream piercing the night air. There were so many stories that soon almost everyone in the local parish soon thought Chick Lane was haunted by the ghost of an unknown girl. Meanwhile, tensions between Sarah and her daughter, tensions exacerbated by the screaming spirit, were causing their relationship to deteriorate. The report from X-Classic states, Continual disagreements prevailed between the mother and daughter, and, though the latter had now arrived at the edge of maturity, she was often beaten and otherwise treated with severity. Thus provoked, she sometimes threatened to destroy herself and at others to give information against her mother as a murderer. Around 1760, a tea merchant by the name of Rooker began lodging at the Met Yard house. He was attracted to Sally, who was reportedly a beautiful young woman. By 1762, he had invited her to live with him in a different part of London. Eager to get away from her mother and eager to get away from the screaming spirit allegedly haunting her and her mother's home now, the ghost of a young girl spotted by the Met Yards and their apprentices, Sally accepted his offer. But Sarah wasn't ready to let go of control over her daughter. She was outraged that Sally had left her, left her in a haunted house no less, and now she became a frequent and much very unwanted visitor at Sally's new address. Sally began to routinely refuse to let her mother inside, but one day Sarah was able to push past her. And once inside, she set upon her daughter and insulted Rooker by calling him an old perfumed tea dog. 
guessing that insult hit a little harder back then than it does now. You T-dog. Sally responded, Remember, Mother, you are the perfumer. You are the reason for the Chick Lane ghost. Rooker now asked Sally to explain what she meant. And for the first time ever, she confessed to what she and her mother had done. Horrified, Rooker went to, the law, enfor- went to law enforcement with the story, but because he loved Sally, he tried to downplay her role in the murders and Anne's dismemberment. However, the police would arrest both women at the end of June of 1762, and justice would swiftly follow. Mother and daughter turned on one another. Both blamed the other for Anne's death at a July 15th trial. Both would be convicted of Anne's murder, and then a second indictment was lodged against them for the murder of Mary Naylor. The Met Yard women were then hanged for these murders the very next day, July 16th, 1762, and it's believed that close to 50,000 people were present to witness their executions. Neither Sarah nor Sally met their end peacefully. According again to the account on X Classics, the mother, being in a fit when she was put into the cart, lay at her length till she came to the place of execution. When she was raised up and means were used for her recovery, but without effect, so that she departed this life in a state of insensibility. Additionally, from the time of leaving Newgate to the moment of her death, the daughter wept incessantly. After both bodies were conveyed to the local surgeon's surgeon's hall, they were used fittingly for dissection. The historic Chick Lane is now West Street. Many of the original buildings have been torn down and replaced, but 200 years later, Anne's ghost still screaming spirit a still screaming spirit is said to still linger in the area. Passengers and staff alike over the years, arriving or departing on the late night trains at Farringdon, continue to claim hearing a young girl's disembodied screams. Some have even claimed to capture the screams on recorders. Anne has been nicknamed the Screaming Spectre. In addition to being heard, claims of encounters with Anne's spirit are also common, many saying they've seen the ghost of a young girl appear before them inside the station at night. Her spirit still not at rest, despite possibly driving one of her murderers into confessing so many years ago. I love that. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't love what happened to Ann Naylor, but I love that those two stinkers got busted. Yeah, they got some justice. Ugh. And I do love I do love the the sheer irony of them uh being, being dismembered, dissected. dissected later. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, me too. Oh, the irony. So appropriate. So appropriate. Do you know Alanis Morissette's back on tour this year? I said uh, irony, I and my brain just like couldn't help but make that leap. <laughs> For anyone who cares, <laughs> I did not know that. You're welcome. Probably a good show. Probably. Uh, I have a few photos. This first one, an exterior shot of Farrington Station today. So obviously, very modernized. This old station. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, this next one, uh, the interior where you board the trains. Probably uh, a lot more of the original construction there. Mm-hmm. I love train stations. Yeah, me too. Mm-hmm. And then finally, uh, a picture of some London orphans living in a workhouse a hundred years or so after Anne and Mary lived in one. Wow. Man, what a tough start to your life. Yeah, so I have a question about that. And I don't even know if you know, but could you, if you were just poor, if, if you and I had children mm-hmm. and we were poor, yeah. could we just send our child to live at a... Uh, yeah, a workhouse you, yeah, just, just out just, of you poverty? Could just, mm-hmm, you could just give them up. And that that was fairly frequent. Ugh. Where like, you know, people just literally couldn't afford to keep their kids fed. Yeah, 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 yeah. Too much, too much. Mm-hmm. What, is, what exactly is a tea dog? Does anybody know? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. What <laughs> that, that was a hilarious, like, I was having other tea thoughts that I was like, oh, that's not appropriate. Yeah, an old perfumed tea dog. 
I mean, perfumed, I just assume means like you like stinky, like, you know. I wonder if a tea dog is like a little lap dog, like a little yippy miniature kind of dog. Oh, sort of like you're my bitch. Or just like you're like, you're like, yeah, you're just like old little yappy dog. Just oh. the human human version. Well, I think I'm gonna bring back tea dog. Tea dog. Yeah. <laughs> I think that, that is that is pretty great. A not perfumed to, tea dog. Not not to be confused with tea bag, but a tea dog. <laughs> I am bringing it back. What an awful thing to just like suffer so much just for being poor. Oh yeah, totally. You know, I mean, I know that like, you know, the way things are now, it's like different you suffer differently for being poor now, but like God, as a child, mm-hmm. I just that is a very cruel way to live. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was really, really blah. But I, I I feel like Anne got her revenge. Yeah, at least in the afterlife. Yeah. I'm glad she didn't give up. Me too. I'm into it. Uh, you ready Ready to move on to a, a mystery now? No setup. This is a very a, strange one. A murder mystery. Not even a murder mystery. Just a weird mystery. You just couldn't let me have it. <laughs> just a mystery. Just mystery. It's not as fun. Oh. Time now for the tale of It Came From the Sky. Oakville, Washington is no stranger to rain. The little logging town of about 700 sees 52 inches of rain a year. The U.S. average, approximately 38. In Oakville, it usually rains about 150 days out of the year. Just about one in every three days. Actually, more than one in every three days. And it's overcast roughly when it's uh, not raining one out of those three days. Um... Another one out of three days is just basically overcast. I couldn't live there. I'm already out. And then it's sunny 130 days a year. Most of the time, Oakville residents are used to looking up at the sky and seeing either rain or dense gray clouds promising more rain to come. They're used to putting on their weatherproof boots and jackets and trudging through dreary weather to school or work. But on one day in 1994, August 7th, the rain was very, very different than normal. Something happened with the weather that nobody could have suspected. Residents in the small town reported that what fell from the sky was not water, but millions of gloopy, translucent blobs, each no bigger than a single grain of rice. One of the town's police officers, David Lacey, recounted seeing the goop hit his windscreen while on a patrol or windshield at 3 a.m. He said, We turned our windshield wipers on, and it just started smearing to the point where we could almost not see. And we both looked at each other, and we said, Geez, this isn't right. I mean, we're out in the middle of nowhere, basically, and where did this come from? When Officer Lacey pulled into a gas station to clear up his windshield, he was further puzzled by the bizarre consistency of the goo. He said the substance was just very mushy. It's almost like if you had jello in your hand and you could pretty much squish it through your fingers. We did have some bells go off on our heads that basically said, this isn't right, this isn't normal. Over the next three weeks, there would be five more instances of these blobs raining down over an area of about 20 square miles. And in addition to the unusualness of all this, like something from some kind of sci-fi horror movie, people started getting sick. The very first day the little blobs came down from the sky, August 7th, many in Oakville began to fall ill. Officer Lacey among them. There were reports of people developing flu-like symptoms after contact with or proximity to the blobs, even of small animals dying. Resident Beverly Roberts grew curious enough about the goo to pick some up and take it inside her house to inspect it. Within a day, she said, she was struck by weird symptoms, including vertigo, and had to seek medical care. And a very atypical amount of residents reported upper respiratory infections and inner ear infections at the same time the blobs appeared. Jim and Kathy Belanger uh, reported seeing dead crabs along the Washington coast around the time the blobs were reported. They were coated in and surrounded by the clear gel. Both Kathy and her dog touched the goo and both became ill the following day. 
a woman named Dottie Hearn collapsed and was hospitalized for three days with an ear infection after touching the goo. What the hell was happening? Sonny Barcliffe, Dottie Hearn's daughter, suspected a correlation between the raining blobs and her mother's illness, so she sent a sample of one of the Oakville blobs, or I guess some of them, to the Hazardous Material Unit, Washington State's Department of Ecology. Microbiologist Mike McDowell found two species of bacteria in the Oakville blobs, one of which was known to infect the human digestive system. According to an article in the New York Times on August 29, 1994, scientist Mike Oswheeler of the Washington State Department uh, said that they found a number of cells of various sizes and two types of bacteria in the blobs, but were unable to identify exactly what the blobs were composed of. They assumed, though, that they came from a once-living creature. Very strangely, before further studies could be conducted, health department microbiologist Mike McDowell said the samples disappeared from his lab. And so did the records of receiving the samples in the first place. Who snuck in and erased these records? Were government officials trying to cover up anything related to the blobs and why? There have been all kinds of theories about what these things are. One theory is that a bunch of jellyfish had somehow been swept up into a storm system, destroyed and then scattered. Or that some type of covert military weapon technology did that somehow. Following the military angle, the Air Force, which was said to have been performing bombing practice runs over the Pacific around the times the blob disappeared, uh, did they perhaps blow jellyfish clear out of the water uh, and then scatter them over Oakville? (laughs) Seems unlikely. Seems like you would have uh, heard the explosions that caused that if it did happen and no one reported hearing anything like a bomb going off. And if this theory was true, why weren't scientists studying samples able to identify them as jellyfish? One doctor theorized that the blobs were discharged waste from a plane. That, he said, would explain why some white blood cells were found in the blobs and the fact that it sickened and killed animals since planes used antifreeze in their laboratory systems. Or lavatory systems, there we go. <laughs> but antifreeze... Laboratory. But antifreeze wasn't found in the samples studied. And the Federal Avi- Aviation Administration noted that the chemicals used in aviation waste would have turned the blobs blue and they were clear. Uh, The theory given the most credence is that the blobs were star jelly. Star jelly is a gelatinous substance sometimes found on grass, less commonly on the branches of trees. According to folklore, it comes from meteor showers. It's a translucent or grayish-white gelatin that tends to evaporate shortly after having been, uh, or having, quote, fallen. Star jelly is a slang term for phenomena closely resembling the Oakville blobs, basically anything from frog spawn to mushrooms to a blue-green algae called nastalk. Star jelly has been reported as appearing as far back as the 14th century, also known as troll's butter, moon spit, witch's butter, and witch's jelly. But again, if the Oakville blobs were a known substance, such as Nostok, why wasn't that verified in the lab? And why would the samples disappear? Could the Oakville blobs have been something else, something not of this world? If so, will the source of the blobs ever come back? Will more of us get sick? Is something watching us, experimenting with this substance? Yet another strange mystery making our world possibly a lot more magical than many of us want to believe. La la la. Just so weird. So weird. Okay, I'm sorry. I was having such a hard time not just like busting up laughing. Yeah. Because in my mind, I was just imagining like hundreds of thousands of jellyfish just like being exploded into the sky. (laughs) It doesn't make sense at all. And then just to like, there's such like, well, I think jellyfish are beautiful. They're so beautiful. And I love, I mean, 
you know, I always talk about like in our business and in our lives, like expanding yeah. and contracting. Like that's what I think of when I think of a jellyfish. They're just like a tentacles coming in and out. So if you talk about exploding them into the sky, I just imagine like thousands of these things going yeah, yeah. like this and like sort of like phalange looking type things through the sky. I just imagine so many people freaking out like you would see it. Yeah. So that doesn't make sense at all. But the visual is great in my brain. Flying jellyfish. Got it. <laughs> I know it is a weird thing to think that they would be somehow exploded into like a million tiny little pieces. Yeah. And then those pieces would go way up in the air. And Oakville is not right on the coast. I, I should have probably looked into exactly how many miles it is from the coast, but just mm -hmm. like visually looking at it, I mean, I would say at least 20, if not 30, 40. So it's, it's a long way for uh -huh. little particles to go up into the atmosphere. And then why wouldn't they rain down in like a bigger area? Right. The whole thing is very strange. I just like the idea of like, uh, Kyler was really into saying like, he's going to explode you. So oh, yeah. Like, oh, yeah. Kyler got mad and he just decided he was going to explode some jellyfish. Exploded. He exploded some stuff. Exploded some stuff. I have some pictures. First picture is just a little old Oakville, Washington. 728 people as of the last census. Oh, come, census. come on. Cute little town. A logging town. Little, little baby town. And then this next one is some star jelly. It is weird looking stuff. Oh. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you'll find it on plants or in the yard. And, and, and I've like, I think we've had this in our yard like a version of this where it's that weird gelatinous goop. I, I know what you're thinking of, yeah. but that is what we found in our yard is a sap from our trees. But that stuff's hard. I, well, yeah, I, it hardens. I've never found soft stuff. Have you? Mm -hmm. I've seen some weird, because I'm thinking like, I don't want the dogs rolling around in it. Interesting. You've never spoken to me about <laughs> this. Because for a while, when we first found the hardened sap yeah. in our yard, that's when Chuck lived behind us, for those of, the, of you oh, that are stand-up yeah, fans. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. We were convinced that Chuck was trying to poison our dogs uh -huh. by throwing something strange over the fence. That, yeah, that so was we found. I still sap. would bet that it was the sap because uh, that tree was dying and it was ex excreting yeah. all sorts of and stuff. And maybe it got wet and kind of made it more gelatinous. Yeah. So that's star jelly. And then this next stuff, this next picture is a substance called um, strawberry jelly. What? And it would be pretty cool if that fell from the sky on a day when you just baked a whole bunch of biscuits. I've I've never seen that before. I know. And you had a bunch of butter. Wow. And you just go out there and just, you know, just jelly up your biscuits. Wow. Actually, it would be a nightmare if uh, <laughs> strawberry jelly fell from the sky. It would be fun for like an hour. You would just be like rolling around in it, having a good time. And then it would, and <laughs> so then it would be kind sticky. of sexy for a minute. And uh, then it would be so gross. And then you're like, oh, I got to, how do I get this off the house? Out how do I get cars? this off the car? Yeah. <laughs> the paint's ruined. <laughs> Okay, well, I'm glad that you showed a picture of it because in my mind, I was thinking of, do you know what chia seeds look like when you um, mm -hmm. it, when when you soak them and they expand yeah. or like uh, overnight oats or like tapioca, how it gets, I think that chia is like the proper one where it kind of has like a jelly edge around like, it. Like boba, those little boba. boba tapioca. Tapioca balls or whatever. Uh -huh, yeah, uh -huh. mm -hmm, like a clear version. That was interesting. That was really interesting. And did anyone die? From it. We know they got uh, sick. I don't think any anybody died. I don't okay. think anybody died. Okay. Because a lot I of people got sick. My mind went to like biological warfare immediately. Yeah. Oh, I was yeah. like, mm -hmm. okay. So like either our government was mm -hmm. testing something out because- and That could be. And it could be. Would, because, it wouldn't be the first time. Well, and like if they were going to do it, where would they try and do it? They would probably try and do it over an ocean, you know, just to like uh -huh. see like what, how does this work yeah. with trying to impact the least amount of people possible- I mean, there have been, as, as crazy as it sounds, and there's like congressional hearings that have, where this information has come out, but the, the U.S. government, has, it's been a while, supposedly, as far as we know, conclusively, it's been a while, but they, you know, uh, flew over parts of the U.S. and did drop biological warfare, warfare stuff on our own, you know, on yeah. citizens, things they didn't think would kill them, but just kind of like testing things out. Right. And if they're doing that here, 
I'm sure they've done worse things over foreign soil. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, I mean, yeah, people uh, have thought, of, you know, the government might be behind it. But yeah, just strange, though. Well, then I was also curious. I did have a thought of like, oh, could, you know, when um there is large wildfires and mm-hmm. the fire planes or helicopters, they like, whatever oh, yeah. they drop to help douse the fires. I know it's not uh-huh. just water. I know there's like chemicals that get dropped. Yeah, I was like, I know oh, I wonder about, if there was like an called. experiment in that kind of space. But that didn't come up. So, I mean, the further you went, I was like crossing out my ideas. But that's, you know, the thoughts that I was having. And I would think, I would, I mean, I would like to think that uh, the odds of the government doing that kind of stuff more recently is less just because it's easier to catch them. And, and you know, like dropping stuff, whether it's fire retardant stuff or or some kind of like biological warfare agent like on American people. It's like, that would be such an epic scandal. Like if they it got would caught, be, but our, I don't know. But also, how upset would they be if they got caught? Like who's who are they going to be in trouble with? Do you I know, know what I mean? I know, they it's can like kind of hide who's behind it and blame other people, and, yeah. right? And just be like, whoopsies, yeah. my bad. Yeah. Also, the planet's overpopulated. So, <laughs> did we do you a favor? Like, I just can see all the angles. I don't think they would say that last part. Yes, they would. <laughs> Privately, hmm? but uh, still said it. Uh, do you want to hear uh, one more story? Something a bit more traditional? Um, sure. Yeah. Okay. I guess I would. Okay. Before telling my third tale today, we need to first take a quick in-between story sponsor break. No, thank you. I'm just kidding. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know that feeling when you suddenly realize you have an hour-sized hole in your schedule and you get so excited to fill it with something you love? Maybe it's an hour to get to the gym, go on a hike, cook yourself a special meal, or simply read a good book. Most of us wish we had more time for the things we love. If your time was unlimited, what would you do with it? One way to make space in your busy life for the things that are special to you is to identify those things and then prioritize them. Therapy is an excellent way to sift through your obligations and to sort out the things that you need to do and weigh them against what you want to do. Once you do that, a therapist can help you find ways to make more time for the things you enjoy doing. Dan, you and I know all about trying to find balance between obligations and hobbies. Mm -hmm. I mean, really, we spent so many years with our heads down trying to grow our business that we lost sight of the things we enjoy doing outside of work. Mm -hmm. This year, I've been working with my therapist to reevaluate what brings me joy and how to find more time to do it. I love to read, to cook, to work out, to show up for my friends, and to serve my community. I lost all of that in our hustle and grind. By working with my therapist, I have found small pockets of time in my schedule that I could not see before. Turns out I do have a few hours every week that I can work out. Can I do everything I want? Of course not. But I no longer feel like I can't do anything at all. And I no longer feel paralyzed by the weight of my life. It's a process for sure, but one I could not work through without therapy. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash scared to death today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash scared to death. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at Meta.com slash Metaverse Impact. 
Thanks for listening to our sponsor deals, Creeps and Peepers. Hope you heard some that appealed to you. Not much set up on this one. We're just going to get into the spooky stuff pretty quickly. Uh, in 2009, Debbie Guy was ecstatic. She'd finally managed to afford to buy her very first house. After working long hours as a hospice care nurse mm. while also raising her children, and now for the past several years also helping to raise some of her grandchildren, she'd secured a beautiful Victorian, over 150 years old, in the little unincorporated community of Zegerville between Philadelphia and Allentown in eastern Pennsylvania on over an acre of land. Debbie moved into the house with her 28-year-old son, David, 26-year-old daughter, Jody, and Jody's children, 5-year-old Zoe, and 7-year-old Craig. A 17-year-old named Nick also lived with them. Though not Debbie's biological son, he had lived with the family the majority of his life and was definitely loved as much as Debbie's other children, basically informally adopted. Time now for the tale of It Cannot Be Undone. David was immediately overwhelmed upon moving in. He felt a thickness in the air and complained about always feeling like he was being followed and watched. Initially, he tried to write it all off as just not being used to living in the old big house and being unaccustomed to all of its sound. But very quickly, it became harder and harder to blame what he felt on anything natural. Debbie began to notice little things very quickly as well. Lights would flicker on and off and objects would disappear or clearly have been moved from their original location. She said that she would do things like pick up a piece of paper, place it on a table, turn around for a couple seconds, and then spin back around. And sometimes it would be gone. Since this kind of paranormal activity seemed fairly harmless and there was nothing malevolent going on, at least not yet, for the most part, the family was able to just be amused by these curiosities or just ignore them. Debbie, however, was already starting to worry that she was going crazy. Were things truly sometimes moving or disappearing? Or was she losing her mind? Not long after moving in, Debbie seriously injured her back at work. Now unable to manage the stairs very well, she moved into a bedroom on the ground floor. And here, she would have a lot of trouble sleeping. And it wasn't just the pain of her new injury that was keeping her awake. She was now awakening suddenly in the middle of the night to the sight of the apparition of a young girl standing next to her bed. A girl dressed in clothes straight out of the late 1800s. She never seemed overtly threatening. Her sightings were actually accompanied by a feeling of peace. However, repeated sightings of her still scared Debbie in the sense that she was now worried more than ever that she was losing her mind. The ghost of the girl would just stand for a while as if watching over Debbie when she'd first wake up and then disappear after a few moments. Meanwhile, while this is happening, 17-year-old Nick is dealing with something else. Before moving into the new house, Nick had always been a good kid. He went to church every Sunday, got good grades, had a solid group of friends, was polite and generally cheerful, but now... Now he was growing distant and was suddenly prone to wild mood swings. He was often short, irritable, and growing more and more withdrawn. David, Debbie's eldest son, was worried about him. One day when Nick was out, he decided to have a look around Nick's room to see if he could find any clues as to why he was acting so differently. Was he using drugs? Walking into the room, he almost jumped out of his skin when Nick's sound system turned on by itself and very loud metal, metal music, filled the room. After a few seconds of David staring in disbelief and covering his ears, it turned itself off. David's relief then quickly turned to more concern when he noticed occult symbols such as pentagrams drawn all over the bedroom walls in black marker pen. Digging around further now, he found a book on the occult and another book on black magic under his bed. David and Debbie and everyone else living in the home were all very religious. The thought of their adopted brother playing around with evil forces terrified David. He decided not to confront Nick, but rather just to monitor him 
hoping that perhaps the music turning on and off was just an electrical malfunction, and hoping that his interest in the occult would be a passing phase. They would later, or he would later, regret not confronting Nick. Two months later, Debbie was back at work, her back feeling much better now, and Nick had gotten himself a new girlfriend, Alyssa. Alyssa shared Nick's fascination with the occult, and unbeknownst to both their families, the two of them were actively performing spells trying to summon dark forces. One day, David stumbled upon the pair in the basement of their new home, dressed all in black, surrounded by candles and pentagrams drawn all around the floor, playing with the Ouija board. David freaked out, told the pair to stop playing with forces they did not understand. He made them both leave the basement, sent Alyssa home, lectured Nick, but he didn't tell anyone else. His mother, Debbie, had seemed more stressed out than normal since they'd moved. She'd just barely begun to work again, her normal schedule of shifts after she'd hurt her back, and he didn't want to add any new source of anxiety or stress to her plate. After being caught by David, Nick and Alyssa decided they needed to find somewhere else to practice their new sinister hobby. Now they began to try to conjure spirits in the local cemetery. And they would later claim that one night they were successful. And they immediately regretted what they'd done. They said that at the conclusion of a ritual, they felt an evil presence and that they both now saw a large black shadowy figure moving to the cemetery, followed by an almost deafening growl filling the air around them. Running back to the house, the two bumped into David in the kitchen. Panicked, they told him that someone was following them. And when they pointed outside the window, David did see the dark silhouette of a man. He ran outside to confront him and to find out why he was scaring a couple of teenagers. But as soon as he stepped outside the house, the figure vanished. And then it hit him. There was no man. They had really done it. They had really summoned some type of evil entity. David was furious and scared. He decided he had to tell his mother, Debbie, now about what was happening. Debbie was also furious. She couldn't believe what Nick had been doing and that he'd been doing it in her house. She threw the Ouija board Nick and Alyssa had been using in the trash, forbid Nick to continue experimenting with the occult. But then the very next day, David would catch Nick again playing with the board in the basement. When confronted, Nick insisted he had not dug the board out of the trash, that it was back where he had kept it in his room, and that he felt compelled, strangely compelled, to use it again. David now threw the Ouija board away again. This time, he tossed it in the trash bin outside shortly before the garbage was collected, and he watched the truck take the trash away. However, just a few days later, the Ouija board was back again. Now David took a marker, drew on the bottom of the board so he would know if that same board magically returned again, or if Nick was buying new Ouija boards. And then he broke the board into pieces before throwing the pieces into the trash. After a few days had passed, there it was again. Damn. Back in Nick's room, fully intact, with no signs of ever having been broken, and it did still have the mark David had made on it. If it was uh, it was the board, uh, or the spirit, or... It was, sorry, it was as if the board, there we go, words are hard today. It was as if the board or the spirit or spirits behind all of this were taunting and mocking David. Debbie now decided that they needed to burn it. But no matter what she tried, the board would not burn. Mm. She doused it in gasoline, the gasoline would burn away, but the board would remain intact, no signs of being damaged. She doused it with charcoal lighter, same effect. It just would not burn no matter how hard she tried. Making things even worse, Nick now confessed to what he and Alyssa had been using the board for. He told her that he and Alyssa had been trying all kinds of dark spells, spells to bring about disease, sickness, and death, and that in order to complete one of their rituals, they had actually sacrificed a stray cat <gasps> down in the basement. 
Debbie couldn't believe what she was hearing. She broke down in tears, knowing Nick needed more help than she could provide, believing that uh, he had placed their entire family in danger. She kicked him out of the house, uh, helped get him into some kind of home. David uh, now drove Nick's Ouija board to the county dump, threw it away personally, tossed it into the disposal area, throwing more garbage he had brought on top of it, and then driving away with a definitely empty truck. With Nick gone, Debbie's granddaughter, Zoe, moved into his bedroom after previously sharing a room with her brother. But she wouldn't stay long. The very first night in her new room, she ran downstairs screaming early in the morning, adamant that she had seen a little boy outside her window, looking in and watching her. She said that he, she knew his name was Jacob and that he had really scared her. Her room being on the second floor added to the terror of the siding. It would have been almost impossible for a real little boy to climb up there in the middle of the night, no less. Zoe was so terrified she would not sleep in that room again. Debbie allowed her to switch rooms with her brother Craig. Everyone hoped that he would see or experience nothing and that things would finally start to calm down in the house. Instead, Craig also claimed to see the same little boy. But now he said Jacob was not showing up outside the window, he was showing up inside the room. And not just appearing, but doing things like pulling the covers off of Craig's bed. At her wit's end, Debbie now took a trip to the local historical society, hoping to find some history on the house. She wasn't able to find much, but she did find a death certificate for a young boy who had lived in their home, a young boy named Jacob. That was the last straw for David. He decided he had had enough, and he moved in with his long-term girlfriend. Jody and her kids were also at their wit's end, and they left to get away from the house, taking a vacation of sorts and staying with some friends. Now it would just be Debbie in the house. She decided to try and have the house blessed, do it herself, the first night she was alone in the home. She decided to start upstairs. When she got to the top of the stairs, however, the air felt oppressively thick. She stopped reciting the prayer she had started. Her chest grew heavy, and she felt lightheaded. Then, out of nowhere, a loud growl filled the house, and some kind of invisible force pushed Debbie down the stairs. Luckily, outside of some bumps and bruises, she was unharmed. She was absolutely terrified, though, and she immediately packed a few things as fast as she could, then hurried out of the house to go stay with a friend. While staying with her friend, she reached out to various paranormal investigation teams who were convinced they could help her. She decided to start with EPS, the East Pennsylvania Paranormal Society, headed at that time by a former police officer named Bill Cook. They told her that uh, their approach was to debunk whatever they could using scientific methods before then jumping into any paranormal conclusions if they needed to. If they did come to believe that their house or her house was truly haunted, they had a variety of methods they could employ to hopefully cleanse it of any evil spirits. They met Debbie at her house, set up a van full of equipment, cameras, EMF meters, EVP recorders, set up monitoring equipment in every room of the house, and initially they didn't capture anything unusual. Now beginning to look into the possibility of the paranormal, further a psychic named Carrie was brought in and she accompanied Bill and Debbie for a walk through the house. Once they entered the basement, Carrie immediately picked up on a bad vibe, and incredibly she claimed she saw two teenagers sacrificing a cat. Debbie couldn't believe her ears. She hadn't told Carrie or Bill about the sacrifice, only that occult rituals had been performed. Now she told Carrie and Bill what Nick had told her. Carrie curiously now explained that it would be extremely difficult to make the house safe again. She explained that when a life had been taken inside a house in a ritualistic manner, a dark, strong seal was created, and now it would be very, very hard to expel any dangerous entities. She said that Debbie could have a priest exercise the home, but that in her experience, that increased the level of paranormal activity more often than it got rid of it. 
Devi was now depressed, but not quite ready to give up. However, a few days later, as she was beginning the process of trying to get a priest to come over and attempt exercising her home, she had David come over to help her with some repair work. And when David walked into the kitchen to retrieve some tools, his breath caught in his throat. As there on the counter, he saw the Ouija board back yet again, <gasps> complete with the mark he had left on it. And that was it. Debbie, Jody, and the kids had enough. They packed everything they had into boxes and went to stay with friends. At the time of her story being shared on Destination America's paranormal series, A Haunting, in 2013, Debbie was having trouble selling the home, which sat empty, and in her mind, definitely was still very, very haunted. Damn. That Ouija board showing up over and over again, it's like a it's like a ghostly Darren. It just like won't let you let it go. It wants mm-hmm. you to keep using it. Yeah. Ooh. And that would be so creepy. If especially if you uh you know made the mark. So like, you know, some that kind was of so smart. Mm-hmm, very specific mark. So you you wouldn't just uh be tricked by new Ouija boards, you know, mm-hmm. of the same style being brought to your house, like someone playing a prank on you. Yeah. But if especially and especially if you the detail, I mean again, I mean, I feel compelled to continue to say this if true. Uh if the person like broke it up yeah. into pieces and then threw it away and did that themselves so nobody else even saw the mark. Yeah. And then it showed up again with that same mark. I mean, unless David is harassing his entire family. No, it just doesn't yeah. feel like that vibe. I mean, even just from the beginning, like this like big family, yeah. uh, this woman who is a hospice nurse, like that is yeah. such a noble part of nursing. You know, mm-hmm. like not everybody has the emotional wherewithal to navigate something like that. So you've yeah. got this like really good woman. She's got this incredibly large family that's like mm-hmm. not even just her kids. Her adult children are living with her, her grandkids. Uh, Nick, not even yeah. a biological child. Like, I just have a hard time believing that it was anything other than haunting, poltergeist activity, all yeah. the things just based on the makeup of this family. Mm-hmm. And she worked so, it's so sad too, because it's like, she worked so hard for so, I know, long for so long to buy this house. And now she's just stuck yeah. with it. And, oh, and I wonder where Nick is. Is he okay? Like, mm-hmm. I, I know that that is not included in the story, but I am yeah. curious if after leaving the house, like, was it the house that caused him to be this way? Because I feel like it was, yeah. you know, and we do understand that oftentimes poltergeist activity is uh, affected mostly by teens, mm-hmm. angsty teens, something about that. It's like, yeah. man, this house. And I love that cop. What was his name? Bill something or another? Yeah, I think He's, it was Bill Cook. Bill Cook. Yep. He's like the the president of the yeah. EPS. I'm like, okay, that's a, a really Eps, fun yeah. twist. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have photos? I do. I have a few. I've uh, uh, This first one is, uh, I think, based on Destination America. So it could be just uh, they used some random house and said it was that house. Yeah. But that's the house that they said was the haunted home in Ziegler-ville. Ziegler-ville. And, I, I was thinking of Zig Ziglar the uh, whole time. <laughs> Zig Ziglar? Oh, I think it might be a Cleveland thing. Sorry. Oh, oh, is, yeah. Who is that? Is that like a reporter or something? Funny. Zig Ziglar. Funny name. And then this uh, this next picture is Debbie Guy. So the poor lady who uh, Debbie doing so much for her family. The poor hospice nurse. Oh, she just looks so defeated. Mm-hmm. Debbie. And then this next picture is uh, a picture that Debbie claimed to take of the spirit of the young girl that kept showing up by her bed. Yeah, no. I, mean, to, I, I would be scared too. Yeah, to me, not necessarily terrifying. But oh, no, I'd be scared of that little monster. Okay. And then this last one, uh, a pick of the ghost of that little boy, Jacob, who terrorized several family members. I mean, pretty- He's horrific. Pretty horrifying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, he looks very demony. <laughs> Can you imagine if like you woke up to like the sight of something oh. by your bed and it was like that? Just look like that little kid. And, 
A cute little costume. Uh, me, I'm like, come here, sugar. What are you? What's going on? Like, like my natural instinct. Sometimes I'd be like, whoa. Actually, would it be scarier? It would be. It would be because it's so um, disarming to right. see like such a sweet little thing. And then, and then you would like go to take his little hand and be like, how would you get here, buddy? Also, and then that he's, little kid just turns into a monster. That kid was photoshopped into that photo. Oh yeah, that yeah? background is not where the kid. Yeah, because all of a sudden I was like looking at his hands and like his hand. He seems a little Tyrannosaurus Rexy. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was like, wait a second, I was looking at the outline. That is a pretty adorable costume, but. But yeah, actually, it's funny. I threw those in there just to be silly. Yeah. But now I've creeped myself out because I don't know what would be creepier. Like, okay, you wake up and you see something that looks like something from a horror movie, like some kind of scary monster image. Or you wake up in the middle of the night and there's like this, what looks like a little three-year-old or two-year-old in a cute Mom. little costume. Mom, mommy, daddy, you know, like something like that. Yeah. For whatever, that actually might creep me out more. I think it would creep me out more because it's not what you would expect. And uh -huh. just like your natural, especially if you have kids, your nat natural inclination is to like, uh, be like, yeah, sweetie, what do you need? Yeah. What if it starts as like the cute little thing and then when you engage with it, it morphs mm. into like, uh -huh, exactly. scary demon yep. thing. Yep. And, and I do appreciate that she tried to burn the board. Before she even tried, I wrote down like, burn the board, Darren. <laughs> like, you know, I was getting frustrated, but I mean, what can you do? Yeah. What a bizarre situation. And it sounds... Like the house still sits empty, unsold. Yeah, at least as of uh, 2013. I mean. So it's been a while. So hopefully it's sold. It's been a while, but like, you know. There was no address associated with it in the in the source material. So I couldn't figure out, like look up on Zillow or Redfin or whatever to see if it is sold. Which is smart, actually, because you don't want just like a flurry of people coming to that house at night or, you know, like it's smart that the address isn't publicly listed. Oh, because gotcha, you're, gotcha, you're yeah. keeping it from being a you know, a place where teens go and hang out yeah, and true. destroy the inside of the house and make it even harder for her to sell it because she probably mm -hmm. doesn't have the finances to, um, you know, fix it up if she's still about to pay that mortgage. I mean, yeah. what do you do in that situation? You go to the bank and you're like, listen, I know I've got a, a mortgage to pay, but also <laughs> that house is haunted and I can't live there. Yeah, they wouldn't care. The next time we buy a house, mm -hmm. I don't care where it is, I am going to ask for the haunted house clause and see like where that gets us. <laughs> I get in the mortgage papers. Uh-huh. It's like, it's like check, this, you. check this box if, you know, Mm -hmm. You're concerned your house might be haunted. Okay. And then we'll we'll just, you know, take it back from you and sell it for you. No sure. problem. <laughs> uh, Sounds good. Uh, as if that were an option. Okay. So, like I said, two kind of heavier stories. Yeah. Uh, but both have these really beautiful endings. So sad and heavy, but also just, in my opinion, so beautiful. And as always, just like looking for ways to kind of, you know, shift what we talk about here. It doesn't yeah. always have to be these overt haunted houses and you know, we're all marching sl slowly towards death anyway. So it's what? like- Wait, I'm sorry. Wait, what? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, we're all on a death march. All of us? All of us. I think I think some of us might live forever. Oh. No, I might. I, I might. I, I have no interest. I might. I'm, I'm, consider I'm considering it. Are you, con you? Well, you're considering like weird, like, you know, putting your consciousness into a microchip and living mm -hmm. on forever. And I mm -hmm. think that sounds like hell. Okay. But you have convinced me that if you're going to do it, I have to do it because you don't want to be here alone because- Yeah, we can two robots. Okay. We could go into a whole spiral with that because once our consciousness is digital, it can be replicated. So like we could be two robots continuing on as ourselves. I just, I can't and then have run, this conversation. And then run into other, and two other robots who are also us continuing yep. on as ourselves. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Then it gets real weird. My brain isn't working in that space today. Mm -hmm. So if we could. You don't just... want to think about like having a robot orgy with multiple versions of ourselves? That would be funny. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> the thought of that is really funny to me. <laughs> robot orgy, but it's only Dan and Lindsay. And we we have to like get a marker or something and put like okay we're number ones, 
and then some, and then your number twos, so you don't like go home with the wrong with the wrong robot later. Yeah, even, you don't want number one to go home with number four. I mean, that would be tragic. <laughs> right, right. Quite the scandal. Uh huh. All right, you ready to get serious about sweeter things? Yes. Dear Dan and Lindsay, I lost my husband about five years ago after being married for thirty years. It was a long, painful illness that we both prayed for his release from. It hurt to see him go from a strong, vibrant man to one that couldn't even carry himself to the toilet anymore. This illness stole not only his body, but his dignity and eventually his mind. Toward the end, he began to fail not only me, but our children and our friends. I know this was not what he would have ever wanted. No one would. He was always a brilliant, kind, loving man, and to see him lose even his ability to recognize simple, everyday things was soul-crushing to both of us. While the outer shell still looked very much like him, what was inside was loss, despair, and sadness for a life he could no longer remember. Finally, peace came, and he passed away. It was a relief, and also as sad as I knew I was, and also sad as I knew I was to complete the rest of my life alone. I had lost my soulmate, or so I thought. Mm -hmm. My husband died in the house that I still reside in today. He wanted to die at home, surrounded by the people he loved and whom loved him. So this is what happened. He took his final breaths as I held his hand, and I told him that it was okay to go. And the kids told him it was time. With a final hug and a kiss, he breathed his last and was gone. I felt that I wasn't alone, and I don't mean that I got a pet. It was just this weird feeling, something catching the corner of your eye, an odd sound, an item not being where you thought you had left it, stupid stuff like that. Nothing overt or really scary, stuff that you could write off as getting older, which is what I thought was going on. I thought I was getting forgetful, or maybe possibly still in some stage of grief. We had a dog named Pickle that would insist that my husband hold her while he watched TV. Pickle wasn't our dog. She was my husband's dog. I was an okay substitute if my husband wasn't around, but if he was, but if he was there, she didn't have any time for me. As he got sicker and sicker, he didn't have the strength to hold her anymore, so she would curl up next to him on the couch. Since his death, she wouldn't let anyone sit on the end of the cushion of the couch and would go all small dog ape shit if you tried to ignore her and sit there anyhow. She would also stare off into the kitchen for minutes on end and then suddenly curl up next to the special cushion and sleep. She would track like she was following behind something or someone going down the hallway and then sit in front of the bathroom like she was waiting for someone to come out. I lived alone and there was no one there for her to follow. I began to find K-cups on the counter by the coffee machine. When my husband was well, he would prepare the morning coffee setup before going to bed. This would include setting out the K-cups along with a spoon and some sugar packets by the machine. Pickle, being an eight-pound chihuahua, was in no position to suddenly make the leap from couch guard to coffee barista. (laughs) Lilacs are my favorite flower, and I began to smell them all the time, especially after I would tell my husband out loud that I missed him. I would get a whiff of some, like someone had walked by wearing lilac perfume, kind of like an aunt that wears too much perfume and wants to hug you all the time. I talked out loud to my husband after he passed. I found that it helped ease my pain. But the flower smell really only came in those moments when the grief felt so overwhelming I thought it would crush me. Twice, right after he passed, I could swear I could feel something play with my hair as I tried to fall asleep. It was the feeling of someone running their fingers through your hair from the top of your head to your neck and down your back. Very similar to when you get a scalp massage, but somehow more intimate the way a partner would behave. Sleeping alone was hard for me, even when he was alive. When he would have gigs, as he was a singer in a band, I would stay up until he came home because I wouldn't feel comfortable going to sleep alone in our bed. It was like some sort of separation anxiety. 
When my husband came home from gigs, he would clean up and then get in bed and play with my hair until I fell asleep. Mm -hmm. It was his way of letting me know that all was right in the world. There were times I could swear that I could hear my husband in the basement in his office. It would be just that familiar noise that you hear when someone is there, when no one's supposed to be there. I'd go to the stairway and, and swear I could hear him call my name, but I would talk myself out of it because I didn't want to go through the heartache. I could swear that I would catch a glimpse of him in his office as I walked past to wash my clothes. I'd stop and look in, but I never entered. Then on my way back upstairs, his chair would be in a different spot. Again, I would tell myself I was tricking myself simply because I missed him. I know that there are stages of grief and that everyone has to go through them differently. I think that because of my husband's illness and what it took from him, and because what it took from him is what he thought made him him, he felt that he had to stay a bit longer to make my transition to widowhood easier. And I say that because of these two things that happened. I decided that I needed to clean out his closet and get rid of his things. It was time. I let the kids take whatever they wanted, and then what was left, I went through to see what could be donated and what had to be thrown away. My husband had this awful, I mean truly awful, wind-up toy bartender thing from his childhood. It was broken and ugly, and I hated it. It didn't work, it wasn't worth anything, and really held no sentimental value to anyone except for him. I had often threatened to throw it away when I was angry at him. Now, here I sat, holding this ugly, broken thing in my hand. And with a sly little smile, I slipped it into the trash pile. Victory. <laughs> I had finally gotten that piece of junk out of my house. I finished dividing everything up, took all the trash to the curb, put the Goodwill donation in the car, and off I went to donate it. A successful day. The next morning, that fucking piece of shit was on my <laughs> counter in front of the coffee machine. I about shit my pants. I guess he wanted me to keep it forever, and so today it sits on his desk in his office. I knew that my grieving time for my husband was coming to an end when I awoke one morning to the overwhelming smell of lilacs. Mm -hmm. I couldn't figure out where it was coming from. I would enter a room thinking that the smell was coming from there only to have it disappear when I passed over the threshold. I finally got to the basement stairs. It was the strongest here and it seemed to be leading me down to where his office was. I hadn't been in his office since he passed, about six months, and it was just too painful. But I opened the door and I walked in. And I'm looking around thinking like, I'm here now. What do you want from me? And as I looked around, I was waiting for something to happen. A loud bang, a balloon to fall from the ceiling. I don't know, publisher's clearinghouse to show up at my house. And then I noticed an envelope on his desk addressed to me. I won't go into everything that it said, but I burst into tears the moment I saw it. It was a letter from my husband telling me not to be sad. He had wrote that he would help me make his passing as easy as he could. He would stay as long as possible, but when the time came to truly say goodbye, it wouldn't be because he wanted to. It would be because this was part of our journey that I must do alone. There was other stuff in the letter. It was eight pages long. But since that day, I have had a calm heart. I know he's waiting for me when the time comes. I'm sorry this wasn't one of your scary tales, but I just thought that you might like one from the other side of the coin. Anonymous. Wow, that's beautiful. Isn't that beautiful? I know, I'm like teary-eyed, but it's so like... Listen, it's just like part of life, but how cool. Like, what if that's an option? Yeah. What if we can like stay just long enough to mm -hmm. let our loved ones know like we're okay, we're not suffering, and to also assist them in the process. Yeah, where did he go after that too? When, when she was ready after the lilacs, so like, what's the next place he went to? Yeah, yeah. Like some sort of like limbo, purgatory kind of space is where he was hanging out and then… Mm-hmm. And what does it feel like for that person who is who's not here anymore? Is there also like a great sense of joy and relief when they're able to like move to the next yeah. place, knowing that their loved one will then 
be able to find them? Like, I don't know what this hierarchy is. And we don't know when he wrote the eight-page letter. I mean, towards the end. Uh, it, it, the way that this reads, I would think that at some point he wrote it. And like, based on what she was saying about his health, I'm guessing he wrote it and asked someone to put it on his desk. Probably wow. thinking like what I would think, which is that like, well, eventually she'll clean it out. And when she like clean out my office and when she mm -hmm. finds it, it will just be like organically the right time for her to find it as opposed to just, yeah. you know, handing it off and saying like, when I die, read this. That was like a, that was like a, a sad, but like so, so, such a good movie. Like the, like, like the way like visualize the, the dog, that detail of the dog tracking. Like mm -hmm. I was just picturing how the dogs follow us around the house. I, I was thinking about um, Penny mm -hmm. when I come up from the basement. Mm -hmm. Penny does the cutest thing, you guys. Like, all so I know it is so cute, and she does it always, always with me. We live in a split level, right? So it's like you go up one set and then you go up another set. And so mm -hmm. she'll be like, Okay, come on, Penny, time to go to bed, or like more importantly, like time to go outside. Mm -hmm. And I'll go, she'll book it in front of me, and then she'll get to the top, and then she'll stop, turn around, and just look at me. And she will yeah. not move until I come up the steps. And then she does it up the second steps. Yeah, it's it, the cutest. And if there's several of us down there, like if it's you know like uh, a night with like Kyler, Monroe, Lindsay, and I, like we we've been down there watching a movie or whatever like that. And if Lindsay's yeah. the last one up, Penny just waits for her. But if Lindsay were to go up like first, Penny will go up with Lindsay, and then the rest of us can come up when we want to. Yeah. But Penny, Penny is always like, okay, mom, I'm I'm not coming up until you're coming up. Which is funny because Penny like kind of tends to lean more into you, so mm -hmm. it's it's like her but, one way of being like, mom, I gotcha. Uh huh. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I love like the the smell of the lilacs. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It was just so like the dog like growling yeah. when like somebody would want to sit near where maybe his spirit was. Yeah, uh, at his that... spot. Like get out of yeah. here. This is dad's spot. I know so much there. Yeah, it's just really really cool. But the the, the creepy part is that damn toy coming back mm -hmm. that she hated on the counter. But also really funny. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's like, I was just teasing you. We were with friends yesterday and I was just teasing you about keeping everything. So in mm -hmm. my mind, I was like, oh, this is going to be Dan and his blessed comedy notebooks that I'm like, please, we don't need them. And he's like, no, we need them. I need them. I might want to read them one day. I might want to look at them. Mm -hmm. That would be the first thing that goes. And then I just imagine this like 30 pound you know, Rubbermaid tote just making its way back in our house and you being like, oh yeah, fuck you. <laughs> That's yep. cool. It is cool. Yeah. Okay. So again, like in my second story, also heavier, but like really beautiful. Okay. My story begins when I was 12. My mom immigrated to Canada from the UK as a nurse in the early 1950s. All of my family on my mom's side still lives in England. We would travel there every few years and I loved to visit with my nan. When my mom got a call from her siblings that nan had suffered a stroke, I insisted on going with my mom to see nan one last time. She was in a coma and was not expected to wake up. I was devastated, inconsolable, and I was not going to be left home. We had priority seats on the plane, and upon arrival, we were ushered off before everyone else. A driver was waiting for us at the gate, and we were immediately taken to King George Hospital in Ilford. This was the same hospital where my mom had done her training many years prior. My mom's two sisters, brother, and their spouses were all at the hospital. Nan did not have much longer. There were soft voices and tears with only four people allowed in the room at any given time. After an hour or so, my mom and her siblings decided that they would all go to the cafeteria for a cup of tea. I did not want to go and asked if I could stay behind with Nan. My mom was not so sure it was a good idea, but I begged and pleaded. There was a nurse just outside the door if I needed anything at all. She relented and promised they'd be gone only 15 minutes. When I was alone in the quiet, I pulled up my chair and held my Nan's hand. It was so warm and soft. I held it for a while, tracing my fingers over hers. As I looked at her lying there, she was just as beautiful as I'd, as I'd remembered. I whispered, Nan, I love you. 
And that's when it happened. She slowly opened her eyes, looked at me, squeezed my hand, and in a raspy voice, she said, I know who you are. Mm -hmm. Frozen in shock, I sat there staring at her. And then, holy mother of God, what happened next is so hard to explain. The air around me grew misty as if I were in a cloud. An enormous rush of air as if I were on an amusement ride that had suddenly dropped, swept over me, and something transparent lifted out of Nan's body and then passed through me. And then a wave of warmth rushed in and then out of me. I gasped, fearing that I was going to faint. As suddenly as it was in the room with me, it was gone. I was still holding my Nan's hand, but I knew then that all the life had gone from her. She was no longer breathing. I sat stunned and immobile, And that's how my mom found me just a few minutes later. She immediately knew that her mother had passed as she wept bitterly and hugged her mother one last time. She held me next and told me I could let go of her hand now. She was at peace. But I said in between sobs, Mom, something happened. I saw something so weird. She stared at me wide-eyed and then whispered, You saw the mist, didn't you? I nodded, dumbfounded, and began to cry harder. How did she know? What was happening? She told me we would talk about it later. Hours later, back in my aunt's house, I was exhausted from the crying, the emotional roller coaster, and the jet lag. I fell into a deep 14-hour sleep. The next day, I awoke to a cup of tea, and my mom perched beside me on the bed, and she told me this story. When she was a nurse in training, she had worked at King George Hospital. She had been working the night shift with another nurse named Olga. On their ward, they had a critically ill man whom they had to check on every half hour as he was not expected to make it through the night. They had just taken his vitals at 2 a.m. and had returned to their desk at the end of the hallway. As they sat there in the dim light doing their reports, they heard the distinct creak of the door at the far end of the ward. When they looked up, they both saw it. A large, cloudy mist was moving down the hallway towards them. My mom grasped Olga's hand in fear as they watched the mist slip into the room where their patient lie dying. Moments later, it came out of the room and disappeared down the hall. They clutched each other, afraid to move, but eventually they knew what they had to do. Together, holding hands, they went to check on their patient, and as expected, he was deceased. Olga and my mom were in a state of disbelief. What had they just witnessed? Not knowing what else to do, they rang the head matron, and when she arrived in the early morning hours, she assured them that there was nothing to fear. This was a good omen in this hospital, she said. It was known at times to collect the spirits of the dying and to shepherd them to a better place. Many had seen it and felt it. It was something to wonder at and to be joyful for, not something to worry over. It brought peace and an end to suffering. They all held hands and comforted each other. My mom and Olga knew that they had witnessed the unexplainable. I had seen the mist, and so had my mom. There was relief in that, in knowing that I wasn't alone in what I had experienced. And that's my story. I saw and felt my Nan leave this earth, and though I miss her, I know she went somewhere, and I know in my heart it was somewhere grand. There is something beyond this earth, and someday we will all experience it. Weird. Cool, huh? That is cool. I wonder why the mist only comes for some people. I don't know. Hmm. Maybe it's, uh, if you're a good enough person, Dan, so. Um, comes for the best? Yeah. So, like, me, Tyler, my mom, hmm. Logan. <laughs> I think that's it. Yeah. I feel like Logan barely made the cut. That was kind of weird, too. I feel like. <laughs> 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 yeah, I love Tyler on there. I was like, Wait for it. <laughs> I was trying to remember who was sitting out there is really what happened. Like my brain, I was just like, wait, which one of our guys is out there right now? Because <laughs> I just wanted it to be like us and not you. Uh, yeah, after Tyler and your mom, I'm like, is Logan going to be in? Is he? 
or not? Yeah, I knew I wasn't. I don't know. I'll talk to Kate about it later and see what she thinks. <laughs> oh, man. I, I really liked your stories today. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. it's like, uh, oh, I know it's not as upbeat or, you know, um, like pulse inducing or whatever, but it's yeah. like, it is all part of the same thing. Like what happens mm-hmm. when we die and what are these spirits yeah. and what's on the other side and is the veil thin at this time or that time? I don't know. I just, yeah. I really love to explore the yep. emotion behind it too, because mm-hmm. it's like, to me, fear and sadness are are just as equal as like love and hate. You know, they are like mm. so strong, such powerful yeah. emotions and they kind of come from the same place. So it's like, I think we have to balance it out sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I mean, if, if every single story we told here was like some intense doppelganger or shadow person, I mean- Sure, fun. Well, I know there's some people who would think like, oh yeah, I I just want nothing but that every single week. I promise you would be so over it after like 10 episodes in a row. Well, I don't even know if over it is the right term so much. You get so jaded. Well, that's already happening too because it's like I'll, you know, get people are like, oh, it's not as scary. And I love it. Like when I see it in Facebook, people are like, yes, because you've (laughs) been listening to this show for four years. Of course, you're jaded. Mm, But I I like that we take those little like dips and and Uh do something that I I feel like... uh, Oh, like, okay, like in, uh, I remember years ago hanging out with writers and they would talk about like, what was it like? Not set up episodes or, but there would be like episodes where there's a lot of action of yeah. a series. But then like before that episode, there might be two or three episodes where you're just kind of setting up the pieces right. for the action to happen later. Yeah. And then, and, I, and I like on this show, it's like, you know, we have these episodes that, yeah, they're not going to be as intense, mm-hmm. not going to be as traditionally scary, but they provide more validation mm-hmm. in some ways uh, than the scarier episodes do. And so yeah. like the totality of all of it is just a, hopefully a really cool ride. Yeah. And I love it too, because I know, well, I believe mm-hmm. and know so much of our community just, you know, from over the years of doing this, of emailing with you guys, of interacting with you on socials, of yeah. seeing you at summer camp or meeting you at stand-up shows or seeing you in the wild. And I know that there's a lot of love in this community. And mm-hmm. it's like, you know, when you experience something like loss, and then your person comes back. Like, it doesn't uh, have to be terrifying how great that you can come here and tell us and we can validate, like, you're not crazy. Your person did hang on. Like, I think mm-hmm. that's equally as powerful as, like, the Ouija board that wouldn't go away. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Okay, do you want to do some shout-outs or should I go first? You can go first. Okay, great. I'd like to thank the following Annabelles for supporting us on Patreon and in all the ways that you show up for us. Tabby, woo. Lacasio, Tabby Lacasio, Taylor uh, Marie, Evan Huey, that one guy, Nate Parman, oh, Parmenter, Parmentier, Parment, Nate, how do you Par- say your last name? Parmesan. Nate Parmesan Cheese. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jared J. Rod Wilson. We have a J. Rod in our <laughs> you family do have a too, J-Rod, which I, yeah. I was like, okay. Funny. Uh, Bo Hoffman, Alberan D. Rico, Lucas Huart, and Julie Gibson. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, friends. And uh, now I have 10 Annabelles to uh, list out as well. And thank you so much again for uh, helping support everything we do here. Nikki Howell, Maggie Simpson. Now, is that actually Maggie Simpson? Or, I mean, it could be Simpson, not an uncommon name, uh-huh. but also a character from The Simpsons. Or like were her parents just huge fans of mm-hmm. The Simpsons? Possibly, yeah. Uh, Caitlin Popoff, uh, Renee Houston, Dylan Mounts, or actually the way it's spelled, Dillion, but I imagine maybe Dylan. Uh, is it D-I-L-L-I-O-N? Hmm? That's still Dylan. Okay, like still Dylan, Dylan Montana. Dylan Montana has no I after the um, oh, it L's. Uh-uh. Hmm. Uh, Amber Sowers. Ooh, thank you, Amber, for the pronunciation guide. I almost didn't give it to you because I just thought it would be fun. <laughs> uh, Emily Chambers. Tyler Eckhart. 
Well, yeah, we know Tyler. Yep. And then uh, Tita Janet Gill. Oh, t- Tyler's down there in Salt Lake City, yeah? Um, I cannot remember. Uh, uh, so I think he's with uh, Diego. Oh, yes. I think he is in Salt Lake City. That's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I think he does live in Salt Lake City. Yes, mm-hmm, yes, mm-hmm. yes. Uh, and then Maddie Zorbrist or oh. Zobrist. Well, which is it? Zobrist. I'd like to give these spooby shout outs. We just have a few this week. Okay. Okay. Now, I just want to say this before I say this out loud. You guys send in shout outs and sometimes you send them like, you know, very far in advance. And then I can't find it again to confirm that I've got ah. this right. So this shout out says to Co Ben from Tyler, happy birthday. I hope that I got that right. <laughs> to Kylie from Kayla, happy belated birthday. Thank you for a wonderful 20 plus year friendship. I hope you had a spoopy day. And to Alex from your brother, Brian, happy belated birthday. I love you. Even if you are a crazy crystal lady and you think that everything in the woods is a skinwalker. <laughs> Listen, take it easy on Alex, okay? Uh, and that's our show. Right? Yeah. Okay, you give me a look. I was like, I was like, man, did I interrupt your no, shout no, out? No, okay. no, no. Uh, thanks for continuing to send your personal tales of terror to my story at scaredtodeathpodcast.com. You can email us for everything else, info at scaredtodeathpodcast.com. Thank you to Logan Keith for editing, publishing today's show. Thanks to Heather Rylander, organizing the My Story emails. Thanks to book editor Drew Atana, polishing and preparing listener stories for book number five. Thank you to producer Olivia Lee for finding the first story I told this week. Sophie Evans for finding the second, and Sarah Finch for finding the third. Uh, We're on YouTube if you'd like to watch the show, and we're on Facebook and Instagram where we post pics that accompany episodes and more at Scared to Death Podcast. We We also have a private Facebook group, Creeps and Peepers, full of fellow horror lovers and probably the occasional old perfume tea dog. (laughs) Enjoy your nightmares, Creeps and Peepers. Hope you were scared to death. Bye. If spirits threaten me in this place, Fight water by water and fire by fire. Banish their souls into nothingness and remove their powers until the last trace. Let these evil beings flee through time and space. Evil may pass through but have no home here within scared to death. Bad Magic Productions. The next time we buy a house, mm-hmm. I don't care where it is, I am going to ask for the haunted house clause and see like where that gets us. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy.